The unity of believers. The unity of believers within our congregation, within the churches of Christ, and outside of those boundaries. How many of you know what the national motto of the United States of America is? Just say it out loud. No, no, no. How many of you think it's e pluribus unum? How many of you think it's in God we trust? How many of you don't know? Turns out, until 1956, the motto of the United States was e pluribus unum. Now, some of you are older than 1956. In the War of 1812, when the words to the Star Spangled Banner were penned, God is our trust was in the fourth stanza. In 1862, the 125th Pennsylvania Infantry adopted that as their motto. And in 1864, coinage began having in God we trust because the folks from the north wanted to emphasize that God was on their side. July the 30th, 1956, President Eisenhower signed a bill that would make In God We Trust our motto amidst the Cold War with the Russians in hopes that it would unify our nation and get the understanding In God We Trust versus communism versus uh, other sides. Kind of recent history, yes? The Pledge of Allegiance. The Pledge of Allegiance was first penned by Francis Bellamy in 1892. Now, many of you have heard me say that my dad was born in 1894, so I'll just relate it back to my dad. That was two years before my dad was born. On October the 12th, Benjamin Harrison, on Flag Day, adopted the Pledge of Allegiance. The initial Pledge of Allegiance said, I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. He had to be very careful because he had a French saying that also he was thinking about that had to do with fraternity. And women hadn't even earned the right to vote in 1892. And so the word was changed from vow to pledge. And the concept of one nation indivisible came from the Civil War in terms of thinking back and, and blending a nation together. But that is not how we say it today, is it, kids? Y'all remember how it goes, right? It starts out, I pledge allegiance to the flag, 
of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God. All right, and there's some more to that. Interestingly enough, Francis Bellamy was a Baptist preacher and, uh, when he penned that in 1892. And uh, in 1948, a lawyer by the name of Lewis Bowman, B-O-W, uh, came up with the idea of putting uh, under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. In 1951, the Knights of... Um, I can't even read my own writing. Those Knights uh, began pushing that... And finally, on June 10th, 1954, on Flag Day, the terminology under God was added. I don't want you to raise your hands, but some of you were born before 1954, including the speaker today. You know, those are things that we take for granted. I always thought that uh, the Pledge of Allegiance had under God uh, on it. And I'm going to really reach out on this one. Uh, do any of you remember a different way in which we said allegiance uh, to the flag other than this? Who remembers that? Somebody remember that? Does anybody remember I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States, America, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Does anybody remember that? Um, as you might expect, December the 22nd, 1942, that was discontinued. <laughs> so there again, somebody steals something that's a good idea or what was perceived an idea. So what's in your lineage? as you think about your roots and your parents and your grandparents. Um, if it's not too much trouble, and I'm not going to have you stand, but if you were um, grafted into the Church of Christ and you were not a Church of Christ uh, to begin with, would you raise your hand with me? You might want to look around. Um, and yet sometimes we can be the most adamant, Yes? Yeah. Turns out, um, Thomas Jefferson had an interesting point of view about God. He believed in deity. He was the guy that wrote the Declaration, by the way. He believed in the deity, but he didn't believe that Jesus was divine. He didn't believe there was a virgin birth, and he believed he was a good man. Surprise? John Adams, in 1797, was trying to make a treaty with the Barbary pirates in a place called Tripoli. And there made the comment that the United States was, States was not founded on Christian principles. Right after he left office and Thomas Jefferson came in, they sent a new group of folks called Marines over to handle that. Does anybody know the, the hymn, the Marines Battle Hymn? It goes to the shores of what? 
See, that was a long time ago, but not really so long. The nation, I think, is going to be, is it 239 years old? Did I get my math right? Somebody help me. I don't have a calculator. Somewhere in there. 76, 24, and 15, 39, yes. My dad would be 121 this year. Half the distance to the goal. In 1801 and 1802, some interesting things happened on the frontier of the United States. Uh, A different mood, a second great awakening, an era of revival, if you will. But before I tell you about that, I'd like to turn to the book of John. You can go ahead and get that. (laughs) I love this part. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God, with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not understood it. Then all the way down to verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 14. The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see something that goes back a little bit before that 1801 time. As a matter of fact, not only do we see it go back until the time of Christ when He was living, but all the way back to creation and His role in the creation of this world. And we begin to think of the author of our salvation, Jesus the Christ. As we put together the vision for this church and we looked and we studied and we had conversations about it, we went to John 17. And there Jesus is praying for himself and his disciples. And finally in 20, 17 and 20, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the whole world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you love me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. One of the, the most divisive things I know to talk about is unity. In 1801, there was a Cain revival, Barton Stone movement. There were some things that happened there that hadn't been seen before in terms of revival, the Holy Spirit, uh, the way people acted. Simultaneously, um, 
somewhere about 1763, I think, Thomas Campbell was born. He and Stone were pretty close to the same age. Thomas Campbell, who was a Presbyterian minister in a Presbyterian church, offered communion to another group of Presbyterians in his church. And he got in trouble for doing that. So much trouble that at one point he was dismissed from the Presbyterian church and he went with the Baptist church for a while, still finding his way. Does anyone know what it's like to be passed over in communion? I do, and it hurts. I can only imagine the feelings that he had as he looked towards how do we restore this the way it used to be in the first century, the way Jesus intended for it to be. As we looked at our vision, several things popped out, and I'm not going to read all the scripture because you know them. But in Luke 10 and 25, something was going on with the Pharisees when they were testing Jesus and saying, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus answered them about loving God, and the second one was about loving your neighbor. And as they tested him by saying, who is my neighbor? There Jesus goes again talking about a Samaritan. Now, we don't know about the priest and the Levite. We don't know if they wanted to keep from being unclean according to their rights by passing on the other side of the road so that they wouldn't be there. That may have been their motive. Or their motive may have been because they just didn't want to get involved. But what what did happen was somebody that was not like the other person, not like the other person, reached out and helped them and brought them back to health. Today, I think in Bible class, we looked at Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is, I call it the fulcrum of the Bible because of, of the simplicity of what Jesus called for. It has to do with the parable of the sheep and the goats. The sheep were put on the right, the goats were put on the left. The interesting thing is that neither one knew that they had done or not done anything. The sheep were just as surprised as the goats. But basically to the sheep, I'll say the positive one, he said, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked, you clothed me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And I said, when, Lord, when did we do these things? And he said, as you did these to the least of my brothers you also did them unto me. Well, I guess that means the simple way to earn your way to heaven is give out a little water, a little food. No, that's not what it meant. It meant because of the love that you had in your heart. You helped your fellow man out of the goodness of your heart, and you chose to do it. So, who is 
my neighbor. Y'all might know this, and this is an audible call. Y'all might know this. I'm just going to go through one verse of it. If you want to sing with me, you can. You know it. It goes something like this. Love, 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 love. The gospel in a word is love. Love thy as thy Love, love, love. We sing it all the time. We sing angry words. Boy, I wish we could pull up the second verse again to go through that. To talk about a careless moment could be folly and the way we lose it. And sometimes lose it with each other. One of the things that we ask as a group is who are we at Lamar Avenue? Do we know who we are? And what do we want to be? Can we bring guests here without harassment of we're right about everything and you're wrong? Can we even do that? How many of you remember Morris Misso? A lot of hands. This church building remembers him because he built it. His wife was also a very interesting lady, Miss Evelyn Misso. And those of you that may have been here or with her at this event, feel free to come up with me and correct me because I'm getting it way secondhand. But she was at a gathering, and I'm not sure if it was just ladies, but somebody looked at her and said, you're from the Church of Christ. You think you're the only ones going to heaven? She goes, nope, we don't even think all of us are going to make it. You know, there was that silent moment, just like the E.F. Hutton commercial, when everybody goes like this. (laughs) I have quoted her, and I hope I haven't misquoted her. Um, Here's what I think we want to say. Unity of believers... The complete unity. The word complete is because Jesus said complete. The complete unity of all believers will be increasingly evident. Doesn't mean it'll be immediately evident. It means we look at this vision as it will be increasingly evident through how we love, show grace toward, and partner with all who claim Jesus as Lord. Here we imagine how we will work with other believers so that the outside world sees Jesus and his love and our unity. That was a vision of Jesus for his people, as I read to you. Paul also calls us to have no divisions among us. Wish that were true. But that we be perfectly united in mind and thought. Our focus and our unity must be based on Christ. We may never agree on every idea, opinion, or doctrine 
But we can and must agree on one thing. Jesus is Lord. If we have that in common with others, then when we walk along them in search of knowing Christ better, our unity will be based on Jesus and not our uniformity. Love. In regard to our treatment of other believers in Christ, believers here means those that say Jesus is Lord. Tolerance is not our primary aim, nor is instruction. Our highest aim is love. doesn't mean that instruction is not part of it. It doesn't mean that tolerance is not part of it. It says our highest aim is love. We may disagree with others' perspectives or doctrine. We will not allow our differences to keep us from the foundational unity we have in Jesus Christ. Our relationship with other believers, as you read in 1 Corinthians 13 about love, protects, trusts, hopes, persevere. Show grace. We will respect the faith and the hearts of others to follow the Spirit, and we will not be compelled to judge them. We will have a spirit of humility knowing that we are all on a journey, trying our best to follow the Spirit's leading. We will not boast in our knowledge or take pride in our understanding because everything we have been given to us by the gra- is by the grace of God. In our disagreements with others, and there will be, we will find the opportunity to listen to and learn from their journey just as we hope they will listen to and learn from our journey. In the event that our differences remain unreconciled, and many of them probably will, we remain unified in the Spirit and show grace and love, giving others and ourselves the time and space to continue to be led to be a more complete understanding of God's will. We will have confidence that if we all are continuing to follow the leading of the Spirit, will continue to grow more like-minded in Christ. Partner with. Not only will we continue to participate and partner with other believers in Christ in our community to benefit those in need, but we will also seek opportunities to help the process of making peace and uniting believers in spirit. We will work in unison toward a common goal of living like Jesus and leading others to do the same. As Jesus pointed out in Mark 9, 38, when others were performing miracles, he said, who is not against us is for us. In other words, it doesn't mean you get to condemn them. One of the problems with the Pharisees that Jesus had was they were the gatekeepers. They had the law, they knew the law. They understood the letter of the law. They had the knowledge. They were the more educated. And yet, how many times did Jesus talk to them about whether the cup was dirty on the outside or the inside, calling them, in some cases, whitewashed tombs. And in the book of John, not necessarily the Pharisees, but those that were of the law and were the gatekeepers. By the way, I mean pearly gatekeepers, in case you're not clear on that. He said, your father is the devil. They said, our father is Abraham. He said, your father is the devil. Folks, in a nutshell... In a nutshell, the difference, the difference between discernment and judgment is 
you judge and I discern, right? I understand that. We do not get to judge who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. It's just real simple. That is the job of the one who had the sheep and the goats. And what a freeing feeling it is when I don't have to worry about telling somebody that they're going to hell. Because like Evelyn said, I may not make it. It's so, so what Jesus would have us do. When Katrina was here, Rita was here, that's the hurricanes. And we had 87 ministers in this building talking about what we could do for God in the name of Matthew 25. It wasn't a work that required us to have very detailed, spiritual give and take at all. It was simply you get food and you get water and you help people. And we had people, even with the ice storm, that brought food to this congregation where we help people. We had people from all walks in this community helping us here. Is there a time for spiritual discourse? Of course, 24-7, anytime. The thing is, if you look at the things that what you would call the Protestant churches, those that are non-denominational, probably 80 to 90% of the things that they believe are in common and 10 to 15 maybe percent are not. And yet sometimes it seems that we spend 90% of our time talking about the differences as opposed to trying to find common ground to talk about. Now I'm going to say this. In terms of where we are as a church, our beliefs, we have no right to be ashamed of what we believe. The reason that we don't have a right to be ashamed is because many, many people have looked at that scripture and even though even in 1825, when Walter Scott went into different uh, places and he took the children first and he went, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, and he had them do it on their hand, he came up with that. That's how recent it is in history. I believe there's absolute merit, and that is my belief. Just for the record, make no apologies for it. I will say, historically speaking, many, many people, the Baptists in the 16, 16, the Lutherans in the 1500s, the Baptists in the 1600s, the Methodists in the 1700s, the father of the, Baptist, the Methodist church, or one of them, the two brothers, John Wesley said, I have... No objection to musical instruments in the worship so long as they're not seen or heard. <laughs> Methodist. Baptist the same way. People have changed over the years. 
before we spewed out venom, let us become students of history to understand where our movement came from, our attempt by those men that were trying to restore us back to the first century. The unity movement, which, by the way, created. There was no intent to have a separate congregation even, only a Washington association. And from that, we had Disciples of Christ. We had Churches of Christ. We have Christian Church. We have Christian Church Denominational which is a part of a hierarchy. Cousins to that at the same time were John Smith. Anybody know what became of John Smith group? How about Brigham Young? How about Jehovah Witness? How about Seventh-day Adventism? The 1900s and 1930s are a part of that movement that started early on. It started before that when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door and made certain declarations. People, we have a great heritage, a heritage that I believe is very, very biblically based. When I sit down with someone who does not believe like I believe, I first of all try to listen to them. If they are open to what I have to say, I will share it unashamedly. But I don't get to sit in the judgment seat. I don't get to tell them where their future is. I can share with them what I believe Jesus wants us to do. I think that is a simple, reasonable goal for this church. Now, this is my P.S. To those of you that disagree with me, it's always difficult to get up in front of a hostile crowd. It's difficult knowing that from the time you open your mouth, people will say, what do you mean by that? Just love me anyway, as I will try to love you. That's all I can say there. Because we're on a journey. I believe this church is trying to make it very clear that we are not the judge. And that we want to work to help people in this community and wherever we can to see God, to see Jesus more clearly. Will it ever be settled? History tells me it will when Jesus comes. And now for the good part of the sermon, it's over. (laughs) If you're a person here today and you have had some thoughts about what does this mean, Jesus does want you to become a baptized believer, to be a saved person. At this church, we have an offering at the end, not a financial offering, an offering for folks to declare that. If you're not sure, we will study. If you are sure, we will take that next step. 
We also have a time in which, if you think about the sermon, have thought about it, and there's something that's not right in your heart, and it needs to be changed through communication, through confession, or through praise, we offer that time for you. You know, this, the songs up until this point have said it pretty clearly about our love. They will know that we are Christians by our love. Let's stand.